world's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think it's public enemy number one anymore. No, no. <laughs> might have been in '74 or '71, but. Anyways, welcome to the Daily uh, Attic Podcast, everybody. It's uh, your boy Tim and Dave with our uh, guest hey. Claudia today. We're gonna we're gonna have her her we're gonna have a guest on today, Dan Laird. Am I saying that right, Laird? My fault. Um, Dan Laird, yes, yes. Um, before before you do anything, before you fast forward, click any buttons, go off to your you know, games that you're on your phone or if you're on your computer or whatever, please take a moment to share the show. Take a moment to leave a comment, subscribe um, on Podbean. You can go on Podbean, Apple, uh, iTunes, Google, YouTube, everywhere. Yeah. Make sure you subscribe, leave some comments, you know, interact. We love to interact with our listeners. And also we, we are brought to you today by happylifeherbals.com dot com where we have many different CBD products and different applications to help you with your overall wellness and CBD is a very controversial type thing right now because some people are saying it's this some people are saying it's that but I will tell you this from my experience with it and I've I've had experience growing cannabis for the last 10 years I will say this, it all depends on the quality of the product, who's preparing it, how it's tested, how it's applied, and how your body receives it. So make sure you're getting the highest quality, the best quality CBD products on the internet at happylifeherbals.com. And if you put in a code. The best price too, man. Don't yeah. mention that. People are spending 150 bucks for that shit, man. I can't believe it. If you're buying gas station CBD, shame on you. Shame on you. You shouldn't be doing that. You should be checking us out. We we not only we have good prices, we have discounts. Yes. What what code can they pin in there? Um fuck 2020 for a 20% off. Or hey. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. Do you? No, I do. Naughty. All right. Naughty boys. Well, sometimes Stop. we have a doctor with us. I apologize. And an attorney. So I feel like I feel like there's a joke there. A doctor and attorney walk into a bar, whatever. But anyways, um, with no further ado, the reason we're here, because we've teamed up with Claudia Mirandi, and we're going to have a wonderful show today. So everybody that's in the chat, I see we have some already. Just be patient. Um, we will conduct the interview. And then afterwards, if you'd like to call in, we have some open lines. We're going to do a summer 2020. We'll get you uh, 11% off. There you go. Summer 2020. Not the other one I said. So, um, yeah, if you'd like to, uh, at that time, call in and keep it short um, with a question or two. We would love to hear from you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Anyways, Claudia, with no further ado, Claudia Mirandi, how are you? Today? Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, guys. So uh, my guest tonight. I have to tell the story. So about a year ago, when I was streaming off of Janelle Elgoway's show, I was preparing for the show, and my mom said, oh, who's the guest? And I said, oh, he's a doctor and a lawyer. And my mom said, his mom must be so proud. And that never <laughs> left me. So welcome to the show, Dan Laird. Oh, thank you, Claudia. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So I, although I've never met Dan in person, Dan, you and I were both on the Dr. Drew show together, and I yep. hope to meet you in the future. Um, I felt, you know, you have a huge following on Twitter. Um, everybody has one thing to say about Dan Laird. They love him. They adore him. Dan fights for his patients. And you're a pain management physician, and you're based out of Vegas. Right. Yes. I have a pain management uh, clinic in Las Vegas, and then I have a law practice in Las Vegas as well. So you're upstairs um, taking care of your patients, and then you run downstairs to medical malpractice is what you concentrate on. Something like, yes. Um, I would say I spend 60% of my time doing um, legal malpractice type stuff. Um, often with a focus on uh, pain management, inadequate pain management, that kind of thing. Oh my gosh, I can only imagine. <laughs> I can only imagine how busy you are. Damn. So, Dan, I, the the question that we're receiving all over social media is: um, you're still treating your patients. You have not caved to the bureaucrat. What is the climate of prescribing? today because you're still working where most of my doctors have been terrorized by the medical board. How is it today practicing pain management? Well, Claudia, I, I think that, that many, certainly many chronic pain patients know, and of course many physicians know as well, that it's, it's a very, very difficult time. Um, there's a, a sort of a perfect storm of regulation and anti-steroid zealotry and just anti-patient bigotry that has worked together to form a situation where patients are really at a tremendous disadvantage. And I know that as being a pain physician, it, it is a very scary time. You just never know when, when is the DA going to be knocking on my door and hassling me. Um, being an attorney has helped me in the sense that I'm able to take uh, extensive defensive measures to protect myself and hopefully my patients. Um, but it's tough. It's, it's a very, very tough time. And it's, it's a time to be extremely careful and to take as many precautions as, as possible um, in order to avoid frivolous accusations of misprescribing or overprescribing. Yeah. And I remember when we spoke uh, about a year ago, I, I said, you know, how do doc, how does a doctor protect themselves? And this is before I really got thrown into the, bo the box with the doctors. And you said it's all documentation. And that is so true. Now that I'm working with lawyers who defend doctors, it's the constant documentation. And Dan, it, it must be so taxing because it seems like there's very little time for you to spend with your patient because you're worried about um, this constant backlog of, you know, take us through your day. Well, no, I don't want it because that's I don't want to taunt you like that. But um, being a lawyer, do you think that maybe keeps the medical boards away and the DEA? Do you think that helps? You know, I've never, I've never really had a problem. Um, I, I, you know, maybe I'm delusional, but I tr tr think that uh, I hopefully it's in part due to the fact that I practice in a responsibly way, a responsible way, and meet the standard of care. 
at the same time, I'm very aware of physicians have practiced safely, practiced according to the standard of care, and who have hassled and had their careers destroyed by government officials and the DEA and so forth. So part of it's probably just dumb luck, but uh, my patients are used to the seemingly endless spring of paperwork that they have to fill out every uh, visit. They just roll their eyes and fill it out. And it's it's been kind of weird with this COVID-19 thing where we're doing a lot of telemedicine. So that's changed our, it's made getting urine drug screening more difficult. It's made getting the, uh, the paperwork questionnaires and so forth more difficult because all of that has to be handled by encrypted email and so forth. But, oh, that's right. Yeah, you're right, Claudia. A lot of it is just defensive documentation. And the patients are, you know, the, the patients are aware as well. And any experienced chronic pain patient knows that you're you're basically on eggshells when you go to the pharmacy. And mm-hmm. if they have a problem, they usually handle it the right way. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, but it's tough. It's tough for the patients. It's tough for the doctors. It's tough for everybody. Yeah. I, I think we've definitely seen a trend over the past um, three years where we've brought the patient and the doctor together. Because when I formed the rallies, it was just, I hate my doctor. My doctor's doing this. I don't see that as often. I feel like patients are now informed. They know what's happening. I know. I, you know, I put out as much information as I can. Um, why is your doctor, you know, you know, why are you subjected to a urine drug screen? Why do you have to go there every four weeks? But it's this documentation because you think, well, if I do everything right, I shouldn't have a problem with the medical board. But we're learning now that the medical boards feed the DEA information who the highest prescribers are. And I wonder, you know, do the medical, are people on the medical board getting paid for finding quote-unquote, bad doctors. I just can't imagine what it's like to be a working pain management physician in this climate. You know, people ask me daily, do we foresee a change? Do you think things are getting better, Dan, for the pain patients or worse? I think they're slowly getting better, but I, I can't stress enough how important it is for what what change has been made has been due almost exclusively to uh, pain patient activism. The doctors, when we complain about stuff uh, to politicians, to bureaucrats and so forth, they really, my impression is they really couldn't care less. And they see our complaints and expressions of concern about patient safety and quality of care as just being self-serving. Um, I remember talking about when Nevada's anti-opioid law went into effect and talking to some politician and he said something to me to the effect that you just, you're just too lazy to fill out extra paperwork or something. And, and that really was not the case at all. I mean, um, there were legitimate concerns, but they, they will listen to the patients and they have listened to the patients. I think we've moved from a time where, it was a political feather in your cap to say anything anti-opioid. If you said anything negative about opioids, you were a hero. I think we've moved past that to now where the politicians are at least aware enough that 
if you cut off patients' access to adequate pain control, there's going to be a backlash. But mm-hmm. so in some ways it's gotten better. In some ways it's also gotten worse in the sense that now more than ever, I hear complaints from patients who have been denied adequate pain control after uh, surgical procedures. Like you go right, in to have right. your butter out or you have a total knee and they won't do adequate pain control afterwards. That seems to be on the rise. Um, cancer patients not being able to get adequate pain control, the ongoing saga of sickle cell patients not being able to get pain control, that seems to be getting worse. But at the same time, the politicalization of the whole thing seems to be a little bit better, which I attribute almost exclusively to activism on the part of pain patients. Right, right. That's how, you know, you think about it, sickle cell. I activate far too often for patients with sickle cell. Um, And when I get called into a hospital to advocate, it hasn't happened since COVID. I'll look at the doctor and I say, I have no idea why I'm here. What's the deal? Why would you do a surgery if you didn't want to do the follow through? What gives? And Dan, the, the tone always changes when I enter the room with a patient and a patient will always say, this doctor is acting completely different since you walked into the room. It's almost like we have to police the doctors for these post-op procedures. And I have put the message out there a lot. I've been criticized on LinkedIn by some orthopedic surgeons, but I'm just telling people say no to the surgery unless there is a solid post-op plan in place. I mean, you know, we're advocating for people with advanced stage cancer whose um, oncologists believe, well, if there's no active cancer, there shouldn't be pain. Do Have you ha- um, our clients coming to you through your legal practice with these complaints? And is there any recourse for a patient? Oh, absolutely. There's more. I've had more inquiries um the, the number of inquiries about inadequate pain control have, have increased dramatically in the last five years. Back in the 80s and 90s when the when pain management was really a high priority, and this is the time that people point back to and say that this is where everything went off the rails, um, there were lawsuits that were based on inadequate pain control. And then as the... the pain management became more of a priority, those, those kind of fell by the wayside. But I think they're coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, I've mentioned on Twitter that I have uh, I, I have prosecuted lawsuits against practitioners and hospitals for providing, allegedly providing inadequate pain control to patients. And I have, and I will continue to do so. I have two, two going right now. Um, th- there's a shift in paradigm where it used to be that doctors and nurses took patients at face value. If you said you had abdominal pain, you the the, the default position was that you believe them. And mm-hmm. I think that's shown that very rarely do people exaggerate or lie about their pain. The perception now is there's almost a presumption that the patient is lying. And Absolutely. if you have ethnic group, like if you have to happen to be African-American, it's even worse that not only do you lie about your pain, uh, you probably, uh, if, if you are having pain, you're also exaggerating it if you're not just making it up altogether. And yeah. that is really, really a dangerous position to be in from a medical standpoint because 
you know, the human doctors have an advantage over veterinarians and that our patients can speak to us um, and tell us where it hurts, what the problem is, what symptoms are you having. And once you discount that, once you don't believe the patient when they tell you that they have pain, you're basically practicing veterinary medicine again, I guess. And you're putting yourself at a tremendous disadvantage. Both of the cases that I have right now are cases where the patient had severe complications, severe life-threatening complications that were primarily manifested as severe pain. And in both cases, the patient's complaints were completely ignored and discounted allegedly and complications ensued. And that's not a position we want to be in. And unfortunately, I think medicine is going to have to, to relearn that you don't ignore the patient's pain or you're going to have consequences. Well, yeah, it's almost like our country only responds to litigation. I know um, a few doctors on LinkedIn truly believe that the opioid crisis stems from the fifth vital sign, from pain being the fifth vital sign, and they blame the opioid crisis on pain management physicians. Uh, you know, they think that pain management docs just littered the country with Vicodin, like Tic Tacs. Um, and while there's that apple, right, in every profession, um, sure. I think I can say with 100% certainty, our country is no longer being littered with uh, Percocet, Vicodin, or any pain medication. Um, it's just... Uh, there's no way. It's gone so far the other way now. Um, and sure, there were bad doctors. Sure, there will continue to be bad doctors. Um, any um, job or profession you can think of, there's always going to be bad actors. However, you know, and, and you know this very well, and most chronic pain patients know the same, that the opioid crisis has been mostly caused by illicit opioids, mostly fentanyl, um, manufactured abroad and dumped on this country. Um for nefarious purposes, and that's how they run these high opioid numbers. That isn't to say these aren't dangerous medications. Of course they are, and they must be used. Sorry, we need that was that statement deserved an applause. Sorry, go ahead, please. You just got applause, Dan. <laughs> Good deal. Um, but uh, we always have to be careful with these medications. They're they're potentially deadly, but they're like anything else in life. It's a risk benefit analysis. There are. Um, there's good and bad and you have to analyze the risks and benefits of everything you do in medicine and the rest of life as well. And these medicines have been life-saving and drastically improved the quality of life for thousands of years. And they're going to do the same in the future. Um, we just have to get through this craziness that we're in right now. Right. And nothing is mimicked. These FDA approved pain medications. There's nothing out there like it. But the doctors sure do like to throw the antidepressants, the spinal stimulators, the nerve blocks, the endless cycle of, um, of everything but opioids. And I, you know, people ask me all the time, is this a cause worth fighting? And I think, you know, I'm in Rhode Island. I've made, well, I police my medical board and I protect my pain management doctors in Rhode Island and whether that's getting them the best legal defense or compliance. I'm in a small state where I've been fortunate because it is so small, but people in large states, they feel lost and they don't know 
what they can do. And I don't, I don't want people to start blowing up your phone um, asking you, are you taking new patients? Because I don't think you are. Um, right. I am. Um, it, it is tough. It, it, and there are lots of, as you well know, Claudia, there's lots of pain patients who have not been able to find a doctor and there have been uh, suicides as a result. And I think the moral culpability for those suicides rests squarely on the shoulders of ignorant politicians and bureaucrats who have, have created the situation to a large degree, um, while at the same time not uh, significantly decreasing the number of opioid deaths because the opioid deaths are coming from illicit fentanyl and heroin, and those deaths continue. Meanwhile, legitimate chronic pain patients are harmed. And it's just been, it's been a public health disaster, as usual, has been the entire war on drugs for the last 60 years. It's just, right. it's not productive at all. No, and I think over the next six months, probably six months to a year, we're going to see a surge in overdosing because overdosing hasn't, if overdosing is slowed down, it's largely because of Narcan. Um, the death is, you know, Narcan, but... Yeah. Post-COVID, now we're going to see, um, we're just going to see an increasing number of overdoses. And some of my lawmakers are the dumbest people I've worked with. And one said, I don't understand why, why are there still, why is overdosing still happening when um, doctors aren't prescribing? And I said, are you for real, dude? You think people are, yeah, I, I couldn't even find a case in Rhode Island where somebody overdosed on pain medication alone. It's was really difficult to find one overdose in 2019, 2018 from pain medication. Mm. I think the, um, you know, the medical boards really come into play here, Dan. I, I blame, um, well, there's blame for everybody. So we've got the 2016 CDC guidelines that will supposedly be rewritten. We can blame that. We can blame the anti-opioid crusaders, the Andrew Kolodny's, the Analenkis, um, who perhaps have had an overdose in their family. And um, we can blame the, the Department of Justice. These prosecutors go after these doctors hard. Um, and I don't know if federal legislation is the answer to this. That's my next step as an advocate is we're in D.C. 2021. Um, we've requested a meeting, a DEA oversight, a DOJ oversight, because enough is enough. Like how many more suicides need to be unnoticed? We are, you know, I refer to this as a pain patient genocide. When, when will it end? When is enough enough for these people? These doctors have been robbed of their livelihood. And Dan, I have young doctors contacting me. They've only been practicing for 10 years. When, when the DEA is done with them, they are left penniless. Their spouses have left them. They've not seen their children. And I don't even know if there is a support group for doctors. What role has the AMA played in all of this, Dan? Well, it's been, uh, let me preface by saying that, that, as you're probably aware, most physicians don't belong to the AMA, and a lot of physicians feel like the AMA is not uh, representative, doesn't adequately represent the interests of physicians. 
That being said, they have been a voice of reason to some degree with regards to the opioid uh, crisis. They have advocated to some degree in, in favor of doctors. I, I certainly think they could have done a lot more. Um, like you pointed out, a lot of what's driving this is fear. There's this hysteria that gets started that once you're a physician and you feel like the board of medicine or the board of pharmacy or the DEA is breathing on your neck and, and watching you, um, you're just driven by fear and you really can't, you don't have the, the intellectual freedom to do what's in the best interest of the patient because you're, you're at the bottom of the survival hierarchy, right? You're at the bottom of the pyramid um, trying to just keep food on the table and keep a roof over your uh, family. So you're you're just trying to survive, and that's that's where they get get you. That's where these physicians who have gotten into trouble um, are are at, and that's you know at all costs, all physicians need to avoid getting in that position. And part of it is education, and and I really applaud what you're doing, Claudia, because a lot of physicians have absolutely no plan in place as to what they ought to do if they ever get an inquiry from the DEA. Some of them, you know, in a panic, will give up their medical license. And then, you know, what that does in terms of their future legal rights. Um, and you've done a lot, I think, in terms of educating physicians about how to deal with um, the, the oppression from these government agencies. I think because of you, there is a national law firm now advertising for physicians for attorneys who will represent physicians and other prescribers, which yeah. I had never seen prior to the time that you'd gotten involved in this. So I think yeah. you've, you've done a great job in terms of helping physicians. Yeah, that's, um, we've also, and you know, Dan, it was no easy feat convincing lawyers to file the class action lawsuit against CVS. That was one year in the making and countless telephone calls and conference calls, but I believe if we can get, Stan, some of my doctors are the dumbest, smartest people I know. They really, like there's no business, they're not business savvy people, they're doctors. And when I, when I found out, well, you don't have an attorney, what do you mean? Like every doctor would have an attorney and they, well, I've got medical malpractice. It's like, well, that doesn't cover you for this. You need a solid, a lawyer who represents healthcare providers. There's, you know, that's their specialty, not a lawyer who writes wills. So it's really, it's really, it's like spreading the movement to keep doctors like you safe. Um, I know your patients adore you. Um, and you're just, you know, I always use the word kind and compassionate with you because this isn't, it's not only a noble profession, it's a dangerous profession, practicing pain management. Do you have um, other pain, man, you know, pain management doctors in, in Nevada that you, you know, that, that you speak with that, you know, you wonder how you can tackle this better or, because I'm, I'm, I sometimes get the, the vibe that doctors don't communicate with other doctors. So is this something that you do as a pain management doctor? I think, Claudia, that, that is true. A lot of times doctors, you know, it, on some level, the physicians in your own specialty are your competitors. 
So there's that. Um, there's also just the practical day-to-day aspect of your busy. You don't have time to to call somebody and have a 30-minute conversation about you know pol- public policy. Um, but in some ways, this adversity, as, as it often does, has brought pain management doctors together. Unfortunately, there have been some who have left the profession um, just out of fear that they're afraid that um, the, the, the worst is yet to come and they don't want to be involved in it and they've decided to retire early or left the profession. Um, there are some that the, some of the pharmacies will start hassling them by like refusing to, re- to fill certain prescriptions or something. And they've left, but I think that pretty much the pain doctors are all on the same page. I think there may be some disagreement about how to deal with what, what strategies to use to try to make things better, but everybody is in agreement that anti-opioid hysteria has gotten so far out of hand that it's harming patients. It's interesting that the politicians who promulgate or, or promote this kind of short-sighted policy, I guess it doesn't occur to them that they're not immune from any of this, right? All of us is one serious car wreck away from a chronic pain condition or some other health catastrophe, and it does happen. You know, 20, 25% of the population is going to get cancer at some point. Um, it is it, it, it no nobody is immune and I, I had a call the other day from a politician who had gone to the hospital with a serious acute medical condition and they refused any opioid pain medication and it's you know it doesn't matter who you are that the, sure. these zealots are no respecter of person in terms of that, that they've some of them have made a list of conditions that don't warrant opioids, which is another incredibly dangerous and short-sighted policy, in my opinion, that we never give opioids for back pain. Um, yeah, yeah, for back pain or, you know, no matter if you've got a slip disc or a dissecting abdominal aortic aneurysm, we're not giving you opioids if, if, if your chief complaint is back pain. You know, just idiotic things like that that don't take the unique circumstances of the patient into uh, into effect, and this, this politician was was literally screaming and crying and telling me that we have to do something about this. And I, and, you know, of course, my heart went out to this person, but I thought, you know, here we are. It's, we we've tried to stop this. <laughs> we've been trying to stop this. For sure, time, you know? right. We're not and, surprised. No. We're not. You know, I. Dan, the first time I got a phone call to advocate for a lawmaker, um, I shared it on Twitter, and people were like, well, why'd you help him? Did you tell him? I was like, well, first off, him was a her. <laughs> and she didn't understand why her mother, why her mother's medication was cut off. But like I said, Rhode Island is a very small state. It was three or four lawmakers, and I think only then is when my legislation was able to pass the House. But I even question, you know, people tell me, well, you know, if you're a congressperson or a senator, um, they'll, you know, they can access pain medication. But where we are soon, we're, got, we're at that point where nobody is going to be able to receive pain medication because everybody is afraid. And, you know, my business partner is Dr. Feldman. And 
three years ago, he said to me, like, there's a four-letter word, fear, F-E-A-R. And he said, we're going to see so many doctors retiring, which has happened. I, I'm worried more about the kids coming out of medical school who are completely brainwashed. I wonder what's going to happen. God forbid my children inherit my illness. How, how much worse? Is it going to get? Because I think we've come close to bottoming out. I want to ask you a question. Since the FDA has issued um, like a clarification about suicide, it seems um, the forced papers has, has slowed down. Do you think that FDA clarification has helped? Right. I think that what you're referring to, Claudia, is that the the scientists have found that when we started abrupt, when organized medicine and, and pharmacists started abruptly discontinuing people's opioid pain medication that they'd been on and had been stable on for years, that when you suddenly discontinue it, it bad things happen, like logic um, destabilization or mental health destabilization, and the patients die of suicide or some other cause. And uh, the, the FDA, and I think uh, other, some other organizations have issued statements about this. Um, and I think it has helped to some degree. What I've been surprised about is that pharmacists seem to be, at least in, in our part of the country, seem to be unaware of this. And I've had, um, I've had pharmacists call up and say, why aren't you discontinuing this patient's opioids? As if operating from a premise that uh, that everybody should be should be tapered off their opioids, regardless of, of why they're on them or how long they've been on them or what they do for them or what their medical condition is, which is you know another dangerous and short-sighted policy that I think we need a lot more education about. But there is that that that's something else that chronic pain patients have been deserve all the credit on because they're the ones who have publicized this. And I know so many of them are tired and exhausted of, of pounding on this day after day after day, but it is making a difference. It is getting the word out that forced tapers are not only stupid and dangerous, they're also, also unethical and they're illegal and, and they need to stop. The forced taper or the, you know, every doctor I speak with, oh, I don't, I would never prescribe opioids and benzos, but the fact of the matter is, a lot of patients, millions probably, have been stable on both an opioid and a benzo for many years without abuse. Um, but I, I chose not to put that in my legislation, a co-prescribing bill, because I knew I needed to take baby steps of legislation. I, who's ever going to listen to this after? I get a, a huge amount of requests to advocate for people. Um, my pain management doctor, and this is very common for a new patient, um, the doctor says, pick one, you know, opioid or benzo. Um, and these patients don't know which way to go. Um, what's your opinion on this? Should a patient have to pick one? Or can they be prescribed safely together? Well, th this is another example of, of a little knowledge is a dangerous uh, thing. The, the interaction between opioids and benzodiazepines has been known for I mean, I remember being taught that in fundamental pharmacology in the early 80s. I mean, it's been around for 
at least 40 years. Um, we've known about it. It's been published about. And suddenly in 2018 or 2016, uh, you know, it's super dangerous now. We can't prescribe opioids and benzodiazepines together. It is true that they inter- interact synergistically to cause respiratory depression. Therefore, they must always be used with extreme caution together. But And in many cases, they don't need to be prescribed together. You know, if the patient is being treated for anxiety um, and a benzodiazepine is the appropriate drug, then treat it with a benzodiazepine. If it's if it's pain that their problem that that is the problem, then treat it with an opioid. Um, we shouldn't be generally using drugs for their side effects rather than their intended purpose. So, if it's not necessary to to do, then we shouldn't do it. However, there are some patients who have both pain and anxiety, and they're, they can be safely prescribed together. My personal practice is I don't do it very often, but in those rare circumstances where I do prescribe an opioid and a benzodiazepine together, I do it. Um, I'm, I'm very big on informed consent, so I'll actually print out the FDA package insert and the black box warning that warns about the interaction between opiates and benzodiazepines, and I'll show it to them. And um, I have them sign something that says that I understand that there's an FDA black box warning about these the interaction between these two drugs. And I've we've discussed the alternatives, the risks, the benefits, mm-hmm. and I've decided to proceed with taking both. Sure. And part of it's just trusting the patient to make a decision about their own health care. You know, that sure. people are responsible. And, and it does take extra work on the part of the doctor. The doctor has to be reasonable and patient and has to carefully uh, explain the risks and benefits. And then it's the patient's decision. Um, but th- these blanket rules where, and, and maybe a blanket rule that, that says that generally they shouldn't be prescribed together is a good idea. And I think it probably is. Um, but are there exceptions? Absolutely. It depends on the, on the unique circumstances of the patient. Yeah. It seems as though the doctor has, forgotten but do the risks outweigh do the benefits outweigh the risk and all of that has gone by the wayside there's just no common sense when it comes to um pain management it's you don't need pain medication we know i knew it was going to get bad dan i knew it was going to get bad but i had no idea hey, we, we were going to be at the point where we're at now. I'm sorry, Tim. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you're good. No, you're good. Um, just letting you finish up on that because we have a question in the chat from Samantha and, uh, a doctor, if you could help, uh, Samantha with this question, her daughter, it seems like, hold on, I got to scroll back. What do you do? Uh, what are your options when you discover medical records resemble a fiction novel? So what she's saying is, you know, her medical records were, false and they have witnesses proven otherwise because the documentation of prescription counts uh counseling and procedures that didn't happen false statements of non-compliance that they can they can refute with witnesses and also um this thing is so ridiculous because it keeps scrolling back down how annoying i think what samantha means is um dan so if you fail your 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 urine drug screen it goes and you know those are prone to error. So that's a bad example. If a doctor puts something in your record that you suffer with opioid use disorder, can can a doc can that get taken out of a patient's record? Um, 
and this is probably the lawyer aspect of this. If there's something in my medical record that did not happen, does a patient have the right to refute this? Um, the, the short answer is yes. Um, and I certainly would never defend a doctor who has inaccurate information in his medical record. I, I will say that there are times when it happens intentionally and there are a lot of times when it happens unintentionally where a doctor will use a template like a, a, a pre-printed or pre-filled out form of non-compliance or something and it will the it will either auto-populate or there will be um, pre-formed language that's plugged in and so you get these um, inaccurate statements and then on top of that once a prescriber has determined that they want to uh, paint a patient as being non-compliant or something. Of course, they're looking to describe the patient in the worst possible life, light in order to justify their own actions. But there is a legal process for having your medical records corrected. If you Google it, the federal HIPAA statute has a process for um, correcting your medical records. And most uh, medical records do fall under the federal HIPAA statute. So there is a way to correct it. It it basically involves putting in a corrected version. I don't know that you can get the, uh, the inaccurate stuff expunged like it was never there in the first place, but you can get the correct version put in. Um, it's, it's a lot of work. And sometimes just writing a letter and asking that the letter be, be made part of your permanent medical record. Records. Right, correct a lot of of misinformation, but yeah, it especially when it comes to these urine drug screens, where you know almost every urine drug screen test will have a a legal disclaimer at the bottom that says that these tests are fairly inaccurate and they shouldn't be used for legal purposes. They're only for medical diagnosis and treatment. So don't uh, you know you can't convict someone criminally with a a urine drug screen usually. It's a different process when you use a legal, um, we use it for legal purposes. So there is a lot of inaccurate information in medical records. And, you know, I've even caught myself doing it because I use, you know, you can't, you don't want to reinvent the wheel every time you open a medical record. And, and sometimes it will, I caught it the other day where someone had, I had used a template where that said the patient had a foot drop. And then that day, everybody, all my patients had a foot drop. And I'm like, oh my God. And I had to <laughs> um, so it's easy enough to do. In some ways, medical records were more accurate when we just hand wrote them. Right. Yeah, I tell you, I remember when my GI doctor. I think he had a medical like a, a a breakdown. He was so overwhelmed with the computer system, and he just he said, "I can't put orders in anymore at the hospital." He was, you know, these doctors they have so much going on, and when you throw pain management into it. One of my doctors said it's like an extra three hours a day um, of paperwork. Yeah, and you spend more time, you know, clicking these little boxes and picking the language and scrolling down than you do actually taking care of the patient. It's not good in some ways. Dan, do you work by yourself? Do you have a PA in the office with you or an NP? Right now, I just just myself. Okay. And um, so if a, a client wanted your help and they're in there, are you strictly working in Nevada only um, for your malpractice cases? 
I am other than for federal, uh, what, are, what are called federal tort claims, where the patient or the family is sitting the VA or an active duty military hospital. I take those claims nationwide. But as far as malpractice goes, just in uh, Nevada or state court. And you're, and you're only one person, Dan. So there's really not much. I would imagine so many people want so many different things from you because you're a rarity. I don't know of any other pain management doctor who's an attorney. Um, now, the, the biggest question people ask me is, why aren't doctors fighting back? Why don't they, and I've tr- we're trying to organize a pain patient union so we can help defray the cost of a, a legal defense fund for doctors. But the biggest question is, why aren't doctors fighting back? What's your response? Well, Claudia, I think it's a combination of several things. The, 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 the short answer in one word is fear that um, medicine attracts a certain, well, healthcare in general attracts people who are, are generally want to help mm-hmm. other people. And so, and part of that is, um, you know, it also attracts the type of person who, if, if you put your time in medicine, if you just ride the ride, you'll get there, right? You have to put in many, many years of study. You have to put in um, four years of college, four years of medical school, three or four years of residency, possibly fellowship training. And so it's a very long road of 12 or 13 years. But if you just get on the ride and you stay on the ride and, and you follow the rules and you're compliant, you'll, you'll get to the end and you'll, and you'll have a practice. And so your whole life, you've been rewarded by not making any kind of waves. And, and people who make waves in medicine generally are not looked upon in a favorable way. It's the docile, compliant person who is accepts the party line on just about everything, doesn't question things, doesn't question authority. Um, and so it's, it's really not in the nature of most healthcare providers to be confrontational or to question authority or to make waves. And so I think part of it is it's the wrong personality type. Part of it is that they're just afraid. They're afraid that if, if I make, if I get in the crosshairs of the DEA or the Board of Medicine or the Board of Pharmacy, my entire career and everything that I've worked for is going to be um, thrown out the window. And I'm, you know, 100000 or $200,000 in debt from all my student loans. How will I ever pay them back? Um, so there's a lot of factors that, that go into it, whereas on the, you know, law attracts a totally different kind of person who generally likes confrontation and doesn't mind a fight. And so that, that I think, is the reason that, that there's this. Um, I, I don't think it's so much as, as doctors don't care. I think they care deeply, but I think they're so afraid that they feel paralyzed by the fear. That makes sense. And I understand that. That's why I think if... Um the pain patients are their voice for this fight. It, it could get done. Well, I know it's going to get done. Um, and it, it's just so important for, I know right, right now for our country, we're so defeated. Yes. Yeah, COVID and now the riots and everybody. Right. And then you throw a person with pain on top of it. Now, you know, depression could easily set in. So what you're listening to this um, later now you have to take a break and then when you're rested, you come back and you fight harder. 
and I'm not immune. I do feel contrary to what people say about me. I have feelings, but what's happening to the pain patient, I refer to it as the genocide. And for all the reasons that Dan just mentioned, you know, fear, that's why patients, you know, activists have to fight this cause because there's not much left after you're done working as a doctor, right? You go home, you're exhausted. I'm sure the last thing any doctor wants to do is go to the uh, state house and sit down and testify why chronic pain patient is, leg- you know, is necessary. So we really are the voice for doctors. Um, and it just, you know, you just feel so defeated. Like, is it worth it? Are we, you know, is anything changing? Uh, so I, I, I know I'm de- I really get those vibes now from people. And how big of a practice do you have? Because I know a lot of doctors are worried about taking new patients and going over a certain um, amount of medication. There's a, so let, let me start with that question. Well, and that's, you know, that's part of the game. I think that, that doctors play is, like, like you mentioned earlier, where do you show up when, when the state makes a list of who are the big narcotic prescribers in the state? You don't want to be at the top of that list. Um, and there are ways, there's different ways that they look at it, like, um, you know, morphine milligram equivalents, um, uh, opioids compared to other medications, um, and, and so forth. So, you know, there's, there's tricks of the trade that doctors can do to change those ratios. It's, 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 I, I think it's thoroughly disgusting that we've come to a place where a doctor is even thinking about this kind of thing, where you're thinking about um, how, how does this look on my prescribing portfolio or my prescribing analytics? Um, but, it, but it does matter. I, one of the things that I've always done I've always been very willing with my patients to prescribe whatever medications they needed um, in terms of, you know, if they have blood pressure medicine, if they have diabetes medicine, if they have other types of medications that they take on a usual basis, if they can't get in to see their primary care doctor, I don't have any problem helping them out with that kind of thing. Um, And I, I don't know, I'm thinking that that helps. That, that mm-hmm. it changed my ratio somewhat, but I don't know. I don't intentionally do it to change my ratio, but I, I, it's crossed my mind. Does that keep me off the radar screen? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I know a lot of doctors have um, taken all their patients down to 90. I even have some doctors that say, nope, I've taken them down to 89. Um, and, we, you know, we tell patients, if you're going to get your scripts filled, get everything filled at one pharmacy. Um, you know, I didn't realize this was a thing where if you go to the pharmacy, the pharmacy requires you to fill a non-opioid with an opioid until a doctor from Alabama called me. This was a while ago. And she said, I just called um, a patient's prison and, and the, the pharmacist that I needed to call in a non-opioid um, to balance out their ratio. She said, I've never heard of such a thing. This yeah, is, that's- this, is, this, is, this is it. This, this is the thing. And this is, I think this is why we were able to get that lawsuit filed. What, what's your opinion on this? A non-opioid well, with the opioid. Very real. I mean, I've had pharmacists tell me straight out that, and, and you hear different things 
quoted like three to I've heard four to one. I've heard three to one. I've heard two to one. I've heard one to one where no, non-opioid to opioid, which is really, it, it, it's a, it's really a stupid and dangerous policy because what it does is it increases polypharmacy and polypharmacy is the leading cause of overdose. So in a perverse way, I think that in some ways, these kinds of policies increase the probability of a, of a, um, overdose, especially with something like gabapentin or, or a tricyclic or some other sedative type medication that's going to interact with, uh, with an opioid. It's just silly. You know, instead of doing what's in the best interest of the patient, now we're going to worry about how the ratio turns out for the DEA. I mean, that's, that's just insane. But you said something earlier, Claudia, which I thought was really important, which was patients do get, this is an exhausting fight. And when you have chronic pain, when you're in pain, nothing else matters, right? It's, it's like a monster at your throat, a growling in your face all the time. You can't think about anything else. And there's good days and there's bad days. And people do get exhausted. And certainly, the I think the only tool we have left that will be successful is chronic pain patient activism because of the numbers and also what you said a minute ago where once you've had your pain medicine taken away and the quality of your life has been destroyed, you don't have much left. What else do you have? So people who are in that position, as sad as it is, those are the people who are fighting and those are the people who are screaming the loudest. And those are the people who are going to save this, uh, save the situation for the rest of us, I think. Um, but there are days when you have to step back and say, I just can't do this today. I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm at the end of my rope. I have nothing left to give. And you let someone else step forward and they do the heavy lifting for, you know, a few weeks and then you'll be able to come back. But it takes everybody, you know, working in shifts and doing what they can when they can in order for us to win this battle. Yeah, it really does. I was on the phone with uh, the U.S. Pain Foundation about maybe three weeks ago, and I said that surely there has to be other advocates who are doing what we're doing. And she said, no, not really. And when all was said and done, there were about maybe 50 in the country who were really focused. Um, and I get it when people are tired. I get all of that. But this is, and that's why I tell people, take a break for your mental state. I check out every day at 530. I'm done because I go to bed at 830, 8, yeah, 13 p.m. I'm a very structured individual. Um, but people, you have to give yourself a break um, and just walk away and just take some time to yourself. And, you know, social media is just a monster in the middle of all of this, but it's really, um, that's how I found Dan is on social media. So Dan, what do you do for Dan? What makes you happy when you're not practicing law or practicing medicine? You know, what do you do? Um, well, I, I do enjoy reading almost anything. Um, love gardening. And those are probably my two big hobbies. But yeah, I'm pretty busy right. with... You really whoop it up, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty wild. I know it. Yep. <laughs> when I'm in Vegas, I'm going to look you up. You and I, we're going to do some gardening. gardening. We're going to read some Daniel Steele. We're going to whoop it up, Dan, this time. 
Because Dan, when you're on, when I'm on social media, you're on social media, and you're three hours behind me, so your day starts really early. Um, and you're you know, you're, you're right there. You're like a workaholic. I, I do get up early. Yeah, and you're right. Social media will take as much time as you'll give it. Um, but you know, I'm just like everybody else. We we all have to take a break now and then from from everything and and get your mind clear and then and then go back to the fight. Um, right. And we're in it for the long haul. You know, it's it's uh, it's going to go on for years. There's no it's, doubt about it. It's sure. been a long time that the war on drugs has been a 60 year war. And it's in the, the overreaching hand of government into our private lives, into our doctor patient relationships, into telling us, you know, regulating what we can do and put into our body is really the root of the of the problem here. It really stands at the base and the foundation of this problem. Uh, you know, people that are responsible and Claudia said it many times and I'll back her 100 percent, 100 percent opioids if used properly can be long-term solutions to chronic pain. And you know what? There's other things out there that are long-term solutions. But the problem is, you know, we have people making laws and legislation and rules that have nothing to do with pain management. They have nothing to do with with uh, drugs, period. They just, you know, drugs are bad. But then they go and they drink a fifth of, uh, you know, a bottle of pine knob after they get home from the legislature or whatever. It's, 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 it's or, or Knobs Creek, I'm sorry, but whatever it is, you know, it, it's 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 a big hypocrisy. It's just another thumb, you know, on all of our backs. It's another way to 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 keep everything, you know, under control. Which you know we're seeing now that when when the dam breaks, and that's figuratively and literally because we're in we Michigan, three dams we're in, break and we're in Michigan here. But when the dam breaks. It's going to be an uncontrollable surge of people because when we do combine together and we do work together because they like to have us separated so we so they can keep the narrative, you know, keep us distracted. But it's going right, to it's right. going to come. The day is going to come. The war yeah. the, it's not over yet, but it's going to come. But before we, you know, finish up here, or go on. We have two questions uh, here in the chat that I want to make sure I address. The one from Samantha, she was not talking about on her daughter's record, uh, the drug tests. She was saying there was procedures listed that weren't performed and there's false claims of noncompliance for not bringing the prescriptions to the appointment when, when, you know, they were and, and they didn't even ask to see them. So is that the same, would she do the same thing? Uh, Dan is try, you know, it's a very complicated process, but at least get that letter into their medical, the medical record. Um, this may affect uh, disability. I want to know is the doctor charging for these procedures that they didn't perform? Ah, I mean, yeah. that would be, yeah. didn't even think of that part. Right. That, that adds a whole nother layer of potential fraud. If, if, if he or she is billing for procedures that weren't performed, but yes, the, the process is the same. I mean, the first thing I would do is, is get uh, get the record, get a an, an accurate description of what occurred into the record, and then you can work on um, the specifics of it and following the specific uh, procedure that's outlined by HIPAA. And I believe it's been a long time since I looked at that part of the HIPAA statute, but I believe that it's mandatory that at least the corrections are made 
to, to be a permanent part of the record. Um, I, I believe that statutorily they have to amend it. But you can Google that or consult an attorney to figure it out. Right. And what type of an attorney would she consult? Plaintiff, a personal injury, or malpractice? Where, what, what type of an attorney? Um, they're generally called healthcare attorneys. They specialize in not so much in um, medical malpractice or litigation, but in um, health, what's called healthcare law, which is like the, the, the there's a huge field of regulation that that regulates the healthcare industry, and there are many many lawyers who are experts in that area of the of the law. And it would be someone like that who's an expert on HIPAA regulation. Thank you, healthcare. Thank you. Um, and then uh, Riobo. Am I saying that right? Riobo? Maybe Riobo. Riobo. Riobo's asking, um, ask Dr. Laird if there is any way or or say or way to say something to my doctor to increase my dose. I've been tapered uh, out 75% since the CDC right, got it. That's hard because if you start questioning, then they start getting pissed, man. Um, yeah. My apologies. I, I meant to ask Dan that question. That was probably the most asked question. Dan, how can people have this conversation with their doctors? Because they're intimidated. So you walk in and you sit down with your doctor and the last visit, the doctor said, I just want you to know I'm taking you down to 30 morphine equivalent. I'm not going to lose my license. What's the, what's, what's the, what's the, how do they start this conversation? As an advocate, it's easy. As a patient, not so much. Right, right. And it, and it is a very tricky conversation because from the doctor's standpoint, what, and, and it is true, you get, you, you do get in a pain management practice, you get people who have problems with opioids, that they are people who have opioid use disorder or some who are just outright addicted to opioids. And those people find your way into the, into your practice. And I've found that they generally declare themselves within a month or two. But Anybody can get into trouble with opioids. So the doctor, part of being a good doctor is that your your eyes and ears are open to this kind of thing. You're, you're looking for signs and symptoms of addiction. So I will sometimes increase my patient's dose, but I, I generally, um, I think doctors are going to be very, very hypersensitive to any requests for increases in dose. And so maybe a better way to do it is to educate the doctor. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but um, a lot of doctors don't understand the 2015 guidelines. Like just what you're saying, some a doctor saying something to a patient like, I'm going to titrate you down to 30 milligram morphine equivalent or I'm going to lose my license. Well, that isn't, that isn't the guideline, right? That's, that's a, a perversion of the guideline. So maybe dropping off a copy of the guidelines might be a good where good place to start. It's a, it's a very, very tricky conversation to have because the doctor is going to be predisposed to think that whatever you're doing is that you want more opioids. Mm -hmm. That's, that's where it's going to be coming from. Um, and it's tough. It really is tough. You know, it, and Dan, I have a lot of people that reach out to me and I'll tell Dr. Feldman, you know, by the end of the second conversation, I will know if this person um, is hooked, if they're an addict, because you just catch on. Um, and I didn't catch on at first. And that I'm not saying I'm, it, it's tricky, but there's so many people that contact me and it's one heartbreaking story after the next. 
but I have people who have chronic pain and addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a very real issue. Mm-hmm. And I have my, my doctor who does my Botox. I'm the vainest individual in the world. I was just with him. He's a psychiatrist. And I, I torture him about, because he's like, I used to treat chronic pain, but not anymore. I just want to fly under the radar. And I said, well, if everybody flies under the radar, shit's going to happen. Nothing will happen. And, you know, by the end of my Botox session, he's like, fine, fine. I'll take uh, chronic pain with addiction patients. Um, this is a very real problem, chronic pain and addiction. Yeah. What um, Do you have patients like that, Dan? I, I do. I actually have a lot of patients who have both. And um, I, and there is a place for Suboxone in treating um, opioid use disorder. And I think there's also a place for it in treating chronic pain, um, buprenorphine or Suboxone. Um, but again, you know, it, it isn't that you enter a world of politics where, where people suddenly think that Suboxone is the panacea and the answer to everything. And you and I have been on yeah. shows like Claudia. Um, and it's not, I mean, it's one more, um, option. Yeah, exactly. The tool, I can't forget the Dr. Drew episode, uh, with the tool. And, and I tell people, I was like, don't, don't, whatever you say, don't say tool in the toolbox with Suboxone to me. Suboxone definitely has its role. Selbuca has its role. Antidepressants. I get it. I know all your tools. Uh, but it, you know, it goes back again to the informed patient. And we're seeing a lot of that now. And I think some doctors um, are intimidated by informed patients. And I think sometimes an informed patient becomes a complicated patient. So I tell my patients, just be cool. Like, stare out the doctor. We don't want to freak out the doctor. We want the doctor to continue to prescribe, but prescribe safely. And if I could, Dan, I would pay for a compliance officer to go into every doctor's practice and to pay for an outstanding attorney to always be at their beck and call. But it's this big, it's like the whole education process. I feel like it's starting, we're in kindergarten and kindergarten and we're working together. We're just trying to build this team together of lawmakers, of lobbyists, of the doctors, the patients, it's just so, um, it's overwhelming, but it, you know, patients are informed now. So I think we're, I think we're getting there. Dan, I know how busy you are. So thank you so much for taking an hour out of your day. I want you to get back to gardening. I want you to read some, some, I want you to read something juicy tonight, Dan, just to take your mind off of everything. So thank you. I appreciate it. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, we'll talk soon, Dan. All right, guys, Tim and Dave. Uh, you guys, before I forget to tell you, I have to. I tried the CBD on my back, and it worked. Now, I can't lie and say that, the, uh, you know, I can't swallow the CBD. That's the product <laughs> I gag. And I told Tim this, or Dave, who am I texting? Dave. And I said, dude, I tried. I tried. I gave it all I had, but I have the worst gag reflex but what happened is you know i've got these bulging discs yeah and i i've been bedridden it's but i'm doing like heavy duty physical therapy again it's just 
Oh wow! Waiting on yeah, I had no I idea. Know. You know, if you no, want, I if know. you want the full size bottle, uh, the full size bottle, you can get more to the point, and it spreads a lot easier. So, if you want the yeah, full size my, bottle, my daughter, can... my daughter's like, "What the hell is that thing in your hand? What is that?" I'm like, it's a roll-on of CBD. She's like, "Don't they come in bigger sizes?" But I've been, <laughs> I think, I think I've already used the whole thing. So, who's ever listening? And I think it made me sleep better at night because you all know I've been trying to wean myself from that 0.5 of clonazepam and I am successfully down to 0.25 because I don't want to be a slave. I know 0.25, my Botox glass, like who gives a shit? Take the 0.205 and sleep at night. But it's that, um, and somebody mailed me a chocolate bar that was made of THC and CBD. Oh, threw it geez. right up. As soon as yeah. I ate it, threw it right up. Yeah, you don't want. Said, you can't, can't handle it. the THC. You just need the CBD. Nope. So that, yeah, I'll, I'll get you a full size roll on, and it's uh, six hundred and fifty milligrams in that in that roll on, and that will last you quite and a while. I texted, yeah, and I texted him. I said, "Oh my god, it's it worked on my lower back." Oh, you so texted it really, me. It's a miracle. You better yeah. get your boyfriend. Dave, Dave yeah. is your full time. Tim is your, Tim's Dave your part time guy. Yeah, Tim yeah. is my. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I know. I remember Dave because I think of Dave. Um, Tim, no, no, you don't have that where you live. But yes, I. So I'm giving another shout out, and I tweeted, um, "It worked." So I Good. said, "Mom, come here. Open your mouth. Try the CBD." She's like, "Get the hell out of here! I don't want to follow any CBD." Well, there's there's going to be different ways. We're going to have different ways to um, ingest the CBD. We'll have, you know, a vape available and uh, flower. And the vape is probably the best, uh, the quickest bioavailability. And the but, you know, we just got to make sure it's the right thing. We got to make sure the right thing is going to it's going to be tested. It's going to be pure. So there's different ways, but yeah, the, the tincture has its advantages because it can be a three or four hour relief, uh, uh, period. And, uh, that's, that's the key to that one. And, and can I ask you something? How long after applying the muscle freeze, uh, do you have relief after how long? I want to say about an hour, maybe 45 minutes. Okay. Because I put it on right before I work out and working out has been, I want to say almost impossible, and I never use that word, but it has just been brutal. So bad. I'm seeing an orthopedic surgeon. I, and I went to my, my physical therapist. She's like, girl, your back is jacked up. I was like, oh, come on. Like, it's really it's holding me back on a lot. But I use that. I want to say it's empty. I'm looking at it right now. It looks like chapstick. That's what Ava thought I was rubbing chapstick on my back. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, anybody that's in the live chat or listening to this show, if you would like a free sample of the CBD muscle freeze in the roll on, uh, exactly as Claudia is describing, just uh, DM us on Twitter, hit us up or go to happy life herbals. And uh, we don't have that option on there right now, but we have a lot of samples also of the screen, uh, skin cream. If you want some of the body lotion, uh, which is as much organic as, ingredients as we can have that's what we try to do with our products is we don't try to have anything that's you know if we have to go non-organic with certain things i mean sometimes it's not even available but we try to have the least amount of ingredients we don't have perfumes in it or different you know um flavorings and our in our stuff that's you know not natural we try to keep natural as much as possible so if you're interested just uh hit us up and um I don't have a time frame for the vape. Great. 
Dan is like, Dan is freaking isn't awesome. He, the best? he is very like, good. Yes, you know, I mean, do you know what type of dedication a doctor and a lawyer? You know, my Jewish doctors. I it's so funny. Doctor Feldman always tells the story. You know, the Jewish moms will say, "Well, my son's a doctor," and they'll say, "Is he a doctor? Is he a doctor, doctor, or a doctor dentist?" Because it's this whole. But Dan is a doctor and a lawyer, but he practices pain medicine, and then he represents people who have been wronged by the system. He's I think such it's, a cool. I think it's he's smart. a really good guy. Yeah, yeah I he's think he's, but you know what? I like him. Very I like him. obviously, the dedication speaks for itself. You couldn't be both at the same time if you didn't have that. But very smart guy. Very fortunate to have him on to the podcast. Claudia, it's always a great time having you on the podcast. We love talking to you and having you on. I think that, you know, your, your information that, that you bring on the the podcast with your guests is invaluable. And we, we, we see it in the chat. We see it afterwards in the comments. And I think people really value this uh, information. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. You know, some, you know, we teamed up where it's a collaboration. You got that right. Um, and we don't, we have to talk about that because people are like, well, why did you collaborate? Because we don't talk, you know, well, who, somebody said, well, who's the addict? That's what they always, that's the question I, I get asked all the time. Who's the addict and, and the bunch. Mm-hmm. So we have to talk about that because mm-hmm. we really, we have, we have to really focus on, the addiction component. I've been advocating a lot for people with pain and addiction. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, we'll save it for another show, but thank you we guys. Will. We will. Absolutely. It. Absolutely. Um, and I love my happy life herbals. I'm eyeing my mini, uh, CBD rub on. So we're going to find, we're going to find a flavor of tincture that you can pat that your palate can take. I'm going to go, I'm going to search the world for chocolate. A, Oh, God. Sorry, uh, we can get a chocolate a, Godiva. flavor. We'll get a Godiva CBD. Oh. Uh, yeah, you just put this. No, you should get a suppository. <laughs> Do the CBD suppository. Don't laugh. I could actually can tolerate that with Crohn's disease. Hey, you know you what? Be- you know what? I met, and this is, uh, I went to a clinic uh, here in Flint, Michigan a few years ago on how to make RSO, which is uh, Rick Simpson oil. It's basically... Oh. A, it's basically, yeah, Dave knows all about Rick Simpson oil. Rick Simpson oil, uh, for those of you that don't know, is basically taking all the compounds from the cannabis plant and breaking it down into about 60 grams of oil. So it would take like a pound of material. You start off with a pound of cannabis and you basically strip it down to all the beneficial compounds of the plant. And it's an oil. It's called RSO, Rick Simpson. He invented it. He was a Canadian gentleman who cured his own cancer more than once using this oil. Um, and back then he was criticized by the Canadian government and they, uh, they even said they were going to throw him in jail. So he ended up moving to uh, Czechoslovakia uh, to do his studies, but neither he, here nor there. I went to a, it was an actual um, demonstration on how to make RSO with uh, it was from the instructor was actually a student of Rick Simpson. So, and he suffered from Crohn's disease. And the reason why he got interested is because he wanted to RSO to cure his Crohn's. And that's exactly how he took it. He took it in a suppository. So he'd take RSO oil, put it in a capsule, whatever he did. And he, at that point that I met him, he only fell ill one time in the last six months since using it. 
and it was because he had pizza and beer. He did some kind of crazy thing outside the, of his diet to to make himself. But that was the only thing. So, you know, his testimony is that it cured his Crohn's to that point. And I haven't followed up yeah. with him. But, yeah, RSO is very powerful. And it's very uh, Dave took a rice grain of rice, uh, the, a dose amount, in that amount and orally. And oh, he man. was he was trying to figure out if he was er, an earthling or a Martian. I don't know. He, yeah, he it was. Oh, so God. it's pretty powerful stuff. But um, just some well, just when some I research. Fly to Michigan. Yeah. When I fly to Michigan, you better have those CBD. We're going to have a CBD suppository. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And then when I fly to Vegas, when I fly to Vegas, I'm going to be reading some Daniel Steele with Dan and we're going to take some gardening. <laughs> then I'm going to make my way over to Florida with Dr. Feldman. I'm so going to do a while you're gardening. Can you, country. can you throw in the suppositories as well then? Just kind of make it. I a, can. Yeah. Uh, I just can't, I can't follow the CBD. I can't. I, I, I texted Dave right back. I was like, dude, I can't. I tried right back up but well we appreciate um, you trying and you know what yeah. it's you know sending it out there to to you know and appreciate I, I already knew and that's why i sent you the pineapple flavor because i figured that the raw yeah. one was way out out you know out there but appreciate you oh, trying it yeah. i'm glad i'm, I'm happy yeah. for the review on the on the muscle freeze um it's very yeah. effective it's Great. one of our top sellers and uh yeah, our body lotion isn't bad either, but there will be more. Uh, somebody asked about the time frame on the vape uh, products. We don't have a time frame on that yet. We're still coming out with our animal line. So yep. that's coming first, and then we'll we'll start releasing more products. So thank you. All right, Tim and Dave, thank you. Thank Let's you. Let's talk soon. Everybody right. have a positive week. We're living in a crazy time. Everybody stay positive. We'll talk soon. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye.